twice in the New Testament, in the NIV at least, the New International Version, we read the word ambition in a positive light. First in Romans 15, verse 20, where Paul is writing to the Romans, says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would, would not be building on someone else's foundation. Paul is writing to the Roman Christians uh, to explain why he has not come to Rome yet at this point in his ministry, and now why it is that he plans to pass through Rome on his way to Spain because he wants to go and preach in Spain because the gospel has not pre- been preached there. The second place we find ambition used in a positive way is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul writes, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you. In what many think is Paul's first epistle, he instructs the Thessalonians about how they are to live. In fact, chapter 4 opens with these words, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. These are the two places where we see it mentioned, ambition mentioned in a positive way. The other five places that we see the word ambition, it is negatively used. In fact, we find it with selfish ambition. Last Sunday, we began a new series on ambition, a word or idea that, in the words of one author, mostly hovered outside respectability. We begin the series with a double premise. God wants us, God made us to be ambitious. And that part of being an image bearer of God is that we are to have ambition. But before we get down to the details of ambition, I thought it would be helpful if we laid a foundation, understanding the meaning and the place of calling or vocation. As I mentioned last week, uh, vocation, I think, is more familiar to people than calling. Um, I prefer calling because it refers to a process. There's an implication of process that God not only called you, but continues to call. Whereas vocation might be seen more as a product. God, God sort of hands you a vocation, and there you are. A side note, I spoke about work, which is not synonymous with calling, uh, but in fact work and calling are inseparable. In the 20th and 21st centuries, we find a secular wasteland in which no single attitude toward work dominates. And sadly, the church has been of little or no help in this regard. Timothy Keller, a pastor in New York City, has a new book out. It came out last November entitled Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work. And he mentions various ways in which Christians view work as service to God. It is the way to serve God to to further social justice. The way to serve God at work is to be personally honest and evangelize your colleagues. The way to serve God at work is just to do skillful, excellent work. The way to serve God at work is to create beauty. The way to serve God at work is to work from a Christian motivation to glorify God, seeking also to engage and influence the culture to that end. Well, the way to serve God at work is to work with a grateful, joyful, gospel-changed heart through all the ups and downs. Or the last one, the way to serve God at work is to do whatever gives you the greatest joy and passion. Actually, there is one more. I hesitate to mention it. But the way to serve God at work 
is to make as much money as you can so that you can be as generous as you can. You may have heard some of these before. And in fact, they may be how you view work or how you have viewed work in the past. There's much that we could discuss regarding these views. But in this series on ambition, I would argue that work needs to be seen through the lens of calling. What is calling? We saw last week that a vocation or a calling is a certain kind of life ordained and imposed on man by God for the common good. Some may object to the use of the word impose. It sounds like a violation of who we are as people. But I would say that God doesn't make you go into a particular calling, but he has selected a calling or perhaps callings for you. God has done this because consider the alternatives that your situation, your career is a result of sheer chance or that your situation or career is a result of your own will and choice. I think it's much more than that. And calling is the answer. We saw last week that there are two kinds of calling. The general call in which God calls us to be his people, his children, to be united with Christ by faith. We are called to salvation, to the body of Christ, to the church, to be a part of God's people. This is usually what theologians think of when they speak of calling. But the second kind of calling is a personal or particular calling. This refers to the performing or carrying out of a particular calling, which arises from the distinction, the differences that God has made between us as individuals. This distinction is seen partly in the gifts or the natural abilities that God has given to each person. This, if you're not a theologian, is what most people think of when they think of calling. We saw last week three rules, three general principles regarding callings. First of all, everyone is supposed to have a personal or particular calling to walk in. We were created in the image of God, the image of one who is always at work. We should be at work and God has given each of us a calling. And as we saw last week in our text in 1 Corinthians 7, whether you're a believer or non-believer, God has still given you gifts and has given you a calling. The second principle is that the personal calling that has been given to you by God is the best calling that you can have. If God has made you, then God knows what is best for you. And thirdly, the practice of one's particular calling must be joined with the general call, the general calling of a Christian. As I said, I am convinced that every person has a calling and gifts from God to carry out that calling. Otherwise, again, what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7 makes no sense. The difference, in part, is that those who are believers recognize that there is one who has called them. There is one who has gifted them. It comes from God. The living out of our particular callings must be in line in conjunction with our calling as Christians and the child of God. This brings up an issue that was mentioned after the sermon last week. There were a lot of conversations last week after the sermon. What if, in fact, you cannot find a job an occupation that matches your calling or your gifts. You are still supposed to work because we have the general calling as Christians to work. We saw last week, we added a corollary that when there's a conflict between the particular calling you have and the general calling, that the general call as a Christian is always supposed to be more important. Paul writes, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, 
he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, he said, For even we were, when we were with you, we gave you this rule, for if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And so if, in fact, you cannot find at the moment a job, an occupation that matches your gifts or your calling, I would argue you still, as a believer, have an obligation to work and to provide for yourself and your family. You can't say, well, I can't find work that matches my gifts and therefore I guess I'm not supposed to work. No, in fact, we are supposed to work. Without digressing too much, I would argue that many of our brothers and sisters today, but in the past, have had to work at jobs that did not match their callings. I remember Dick Kai saying many years ago, how many of our brothers who were poets, for example, ended up being warriors, being drafted, being forced to fight in wars that they knew nothing about. And one would say that their calling did not match what they ended up doing. The Lord willing, we will see why this is the case later on in this series. We are called by God to work for the common good. We should not profane or misuse our callings by seeking to serve our own interests. When we do this in seeking to serve ourselves, we serve neither God nor the common good. Just a digression briefly about the common good. Robert Bella in his book, near the end of his book, Habits of the Heart, said to make a real difference, there would have to be a reapportionment of the idea of vocation or calling, a return to a new way of the, uh, to the idea of work as a contribution to the good of all and not merely as a means to one's own advancement. In other words, vocation or calling for the common good rather than a means of self-advancement. This seems appropriate and proper. But Dorothy Sayers, in her writings in the 1940s, made a fascinating point. She said, the moment you only think of serving other people, you might say the common good, you begin to have a notion that other people owe you something for your pains. You begin to think that you have a claim on the community. You will begin to bargain for reward, to angle for applause, and to harbor a grievance if you are not appreciated. But if your mind is set on serving the work, then you know that you have nothing to look for. The only reward the work can give you is the satisfaction of beholding its perfection. The work takes all and gives nothing but itself. And to serve the work is a labor of pure love. It is the work that serves the community. The business of the worker is to serve the work. I think she makes a good point that oftentimes in seeking to serve the common good, that has become an idol in and of itself. But so can work. And in serving the work, I think we may make our work an idol. Our ambition as God's people is to serve God by serving the common good through our work. Last Sunday, we looked at the matter of choosing a calling. And I uh, suggested several principles for doing so. First of all, we are to choose honest and lawful callings to walk in. How do we know if it is honest or lawful? I think it's sort of a facetious question because I think we generally know. But 
we should ask ourselves, the calling that I have from God, does it serve to uphold and maintain one of three institutions that God has created, three estates, the family, the church, or the commonwealth or society at large? The second principle is that every person must choose a fit calling to walk in. I hesitate to mention it again, but I I would love to be an artist. Um, I cannot be. I do not have those gifts. It would be foolish of me, it would be wrong of me to seek that as my vocation. The third principle is if you are suited or qualified for various callings, you must choose the best calling for you. Up to this point, last week and up to this point in the sermon, we've been thinking of calling in the context of society, of the commonwealth, the common good, thinking in terms of career, occupation, and work. But we need to remember that there is calling with regard to family and church. And so I think it might be helpful if we we consider these briefly. What is the business of the calling in family and the calling in church? But even before that, let's ask ourselves, why is there calling at all? Why is it that God has chosen to do things in this way? Let me suggest at least four reasons why calling is important and why God calls us. First of all, God wants human beings to acknowledge him as Lord, as the one who calls. He calls human beings, those made in his image, to serve him in the duties of faith and obedience. Therefore, every human being has a calling, whether they believe or do not believe, whether they acknowledge him as sovereign Lord or do not. And God has given them the gifts to carry these out. The difference, in part, is that a believer recognizes God as the one who calls. So, first of all, God wants us to acknowledge him as the one who calls. Secondly, since he made us to be social creatures, it is his will that we live in social relationships, in societies. We are to be interacting with each other, interdependent with each other. We are to serve each other. Thirdly, since we are to live in societies, God does not want us wandering around aimlessly. He wants us tied to a particular place, a particular calling. And this was true even before Adam and Eve sinned. This was true in Eden. Adam was given a calling and he was assigned a place to live. He was given a very ambitious mandate that he was, in fact, to fill the earth, to subdue it. But first of all, God put him in the Garden of Eden and there he was to learn his craft before he left the garden and went out with his descendants to subdue the earth. So calling is not the result of sin. That we have to be told what to do isn't because we are sinners. We are that. But even Adam and Eve in their perfection had to be told what to do because God is the one who calls and we are the ones who are being called. Even without sin, We need to be assigned a calling. John Calvin wrote about this in his Institutes of Christian Religion. The Lord bids each one of us in all of life's actions to look to his calling. For the Lord knows with what great restlessness human nature flames, with what fickleness it is borne hither and thither, how its ambition longs to embrace various things at once. Therefore, lest through our stupidity and rashness everything be turned topsy-turvy, He has appointed duties for every person in his particular way of life. 
Therefore, each individual has his own kind of living assigned to him by the Lord as a sort of sentry post that he may not needlessly wander through life. So that we have a purpose. God has called us so that there is something we are to do in our lives. I would suggest that the fourth reason that there is calling is that God wants us to do our callings, our occupations, our work in the right way. That is, in faith and obedience to him who has called us. Now, if you think about these four things that I've just suggested as to why God has given us calling, they in fact run contrary to much of the way people think today. I think many reject the notion that anyone has any authority over them to call them into a particular way of life. As my sister used to say to me when we were children, you're not the boss of me. And people don't want anyone being the boss of them, even if it is God. They want to choose their own way. And yet, you may hear people talk about vocation or calling. I think perhaps we should ask them very gently, who is doing the calling? If you have a calling, then who is the one calling? I think people also, many people, tend to reject the notion that we are to serve one another. For many in our society, the one they seek to serve is self. Thus, their work, even in the service industry, even in things like public service, is not done to serve others, but to get money in order to serve oneself. Again, to quote from Dorothy Sayers, who wrote this in the early days of World War II, the habit of thinking about work as something one does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think about it in, instead in terms of the work being done itself. This is in the early 1940s. The essential modern heresy being that work is not the expression of man's creative energy in the service of society, but only something one does in order to obtain money and leisure. She went on to say the reason why men often find themselves happy and satisfied in the army is that for the first time in their lives, they found themselves doing something not for the pay, which is miserable, but for the sake of getting things done. In other words, they had calling. Let me ask you, have you noticed that oftentimes that when people may in fact work to serve themselves, they will speak in glowing terms and with great admiration of those who serve others, of those who give their lives to serve others. They may even say, well, I wish I were more like that person. And without being too harsh, I would suggest that they actually don't want to be like that person, but they would like to be admired and respected like that person. They don't want to serve others, certainly not as a life calling. Uh, again, Dick Kais comes to mind. Uh, he spoke about the difference between the passing of Princess Diana and Mother Teresa. How that there was this great outpouring at the death of Diana. Not so much for Mother Teresa. And he suggested that many people wanted to be like Princess Diana. And they sort of wanted to be like Mother Teresa too. But in fact, they could be like Mother Teresa. They could never in a million years be like Princess Diana because there are not that many princesses around. But you could in fact, like Teresa out of Albania, give your life to serve those who are sick and dying. 
So from a distance, people say, well, I really admire that person. Yeah. But the reality is we would rather serve ourselves than to serve others. I think another reason why people reject calling is they tend to have the ambition of having no calling whatsoever. Therefore, no responsibilities. Duty, like work, is a four-letter word, one that people would rather avoid. People would prefer to be free and to have no calling and simply to do whatever they want. Also, in rejecting the notion of calling, people reject the notion that God can tell us how we are to do our callings. Many people complain that there is a crisis of ethics in our society today. But ask yourselves, why should people be ethical? If economic self-interest is what drives everything, why should people follow any rules? And who made the rules anyway? When there is no one who calls, when there is no one who is being called to serve God by serving others, then anything is possible. And I would suggest to you that the economic crisis we find ourselves in today, which began several years ago, clearly demonstrate this to be true. I mean, how could people do the corrupt things that they did and imagine that they weren't wrong? Okay, to get back to the matter of calling in family and church, it's not simply in society serving the common good. In the family, there are various callings. Husband, wife, father, mother, son, daughter, and many more. And there are various duties or obligations with each calling in the family. Therefore, to enter into marriage is not simply some romantic enterprise. And while there is to be love and affection that brings two people together, it is a matter of entering into a calling from God. The covenant of marriage involves three parties. God, the man, and the woman. Or if you wish, the one who called and those who are called. This means that marriage is not to be entered into lightly. It is a calling. It is a calling. And there are duties in this calling. While we are delighted that Ben and Becca shortly will be entering into marriage, we share in their love and in their joy. We should also be reminded that God is calling them. They have a calling to enter into marriage. Just as there is the calling to be a son or a daughter, and some might object and say, well, wait a minute, I didn't ask to be born. Certainly didn't ask to be born into the family I was born into. We much prefer marriage in which we have this sense that we make the choice. You know, being a son or a daughter, you have no choice because by the time you figure things out, it's, it's too late. Um, but you're absolutely right. You did not choose to be a son or a daughter. It is God who gave you life and existence. It is God who put you into the family of which you are a part. And he calls you to be a son or a daughter to fulfill your duties and obligations with diligence. It begins with the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you. Side note, I think a case can be made that when we look at the Ten Commandments, it, it expresses our duties or obligations with regard to our callings. The first four commandments are duties to the church, the fifth commandment, our duty to family, and then commandments six through ten, our duties to society. Our callings as sons and daughters and the accompanying duties 
It's a lifelong enterprise. That is, in my opinion, we are not free from our duties until the day of our deaths. We are not free to dishonor our parents once they are gone. Now they're gone, we can talk about them. Uh, We are to honor our parents. You see, it's as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Our existence comes from him, that is from God. It's not merely the result of some biological process. Who we are comes from him. Our callings come from him. And it is through his sustaining us and all creation that we are able to exist and to walk in our callings. And our duty, our responsibility, our accountability is to him. One day each of us will stand before him and give an accounting of our lives to him who gave us life. This is the biblical view of reality. But there is part of our sinful humanness that is really uncomfortable with this. We might even say resentful. We would rather attribute what happens in this reality to chance or to romance or to cause and effect or to the processes of nature than to accept the doctrine of calling as seen in Scripture. I think we must, as individuals and as a church, acknowledge the truth of what Paul wrote in Romans 11.35 and bow in humility before God. I said this last week. I've had a number of people over the years say to me that they want to know what they should do with their lives, but they do not want to submit to the one who calls. The two are to go together. Last week we looked, among other things, at the choosing of one's calling, that having chosen, a call, having chosen a calling based on gifts and inclinations, based on the advice of others, what are we to do in our callings? Now, each of us will have a different calling, but there are some general principles, I think, that will guide each of us, no matter what our calling is. The first is that we must stay within the limits of our calling. I really struggled with this. In terms of the sermon, this was the most difficult part for me. Um, Because I don't want to oversell this or make too much of it. But if God has given us a particular calling, there are duties within that calling. And this should be our focus, not the duties of, of somebody else's calling or of some other vocation that we might wish that we had. We have an incident recorded in Luke chapter 12, in which a man came to Jesus and said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This is in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. That is, he wanted Jesus to help settle this family dispute involving the family inheritance. And you may may re, uh, remember, particularly from the story of the prodigal son, that it was a Jewish custom that the inheritance didn't simply come after the father died. It was often divided while the father was still alive. So this is a really crucial issue. And this man is really concerned that his brother's going to get way too much of the inheritance. And if you think about it, if you wanted someone to serve as a judge... And to make a judgment in this regard, Jesus would seem to be the perfect choice. Uh, The man sees Jesus as a teacher, I would even say as a great teacher. Uh, But how does Jesus respond? Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? As much as to say the responsibility, that responsibility of making a judgment, is not within the limits of my calling. 
And although qualified, Jesus would not go beyond the limits of his calling. In fact, you will note that the man refers to Jesus as teacher. As much as to say to Jesus, okay, your calling is that of a teacher. And as if to confirm the fact, Jesus then began to teach on the dangers of greed and the truth that one's life does not consist in one's possessions. So Jesus would not serve as a judge, but he would in fact do what his calling was, and that is to be a teacher. If we step outside our callings, we are disobeying God and may be unqualified for that calling. We, we may know what it is God wants us to do, but the grass is always greener over there and we begin to go outside. We, I think, are walking in disobedience. The Bible and human history, in fact, is filled with examples of those who stepped outside their callings. The one that comes to mind for me is King Saul, the first king of Israel. And there was a crisis. They were going to fight the Philistines. But before they went into battle, they would have to have sacrifices that were offered. And Samuel was really late and and the men were beginning to despair. Uh, I think the NIV says that they were quaking with fear and various men began to desert. So Saul's army is getting smaller by the minute and so he decides I will take matters into my own hand and therefore he offers a burnt offering and fellowship offerings. Then Samuel showed up and said or asked, what have you done? Saul answered, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel told him, because of this, your kingdom will not endure. It will be given to another. Why? Because as king, he had great power, but it was not within his calling to act as a priest. Another king, later on, centuries later, Uzziah, who became very powerful and decided that he wanted to burn incense in the temple. This is also the duty of the priest, not of the king. He was confronted by Azariah the priest, who said to him, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense in the, uh, to the Lord. That is for the priest. Well, this king raged against the priest. Don't you know who I am? God struck him immediately on the spot with leprosy, and Uzziah died a leper. Jonah was called to be a prophet, but decided he'd rather be a tourist and go on a ship and get out of town. You remember what happened. Again, I don't want to oversell this. And to be honest, I don't know if it's because I'm an American and I live in this country or if it's because of my own experience. But our thinking oftentimes is that this is a place where anyone could do any job that he or she wants to. Anyone can grow up to be president. I don't think that that's true. But I, it's part of our American myth, and I think it really affects our thinking. Also, there seems to be this thinking that if you excel in one field, this automatically qualifies you to excel in other fields. That may be the case, but it isn't necessarily true. On the other hand, we have the extreme, the opposite side, and that is of over-specialization, where people say, well, no, no, I can't do that because that is outside my calling. This has come into the church as well. I noticed several years ago. Within the last 50 years, the church, by God's grace, has recovered the doctrine of spiritual gifts, that God has called us all to do several things. But in fact, some have been given, if you wish, a more intense version of that than they've been given a gift. And the church is to recognize that. 
And I remember speaking to someone, this is years ago, about a particular situation that required compassion. And the person to whom I was speaking said something to this effect. Um, I don't have the gift of mercy. If you wish, I don't do mercy. But so-and-so has the gift of mercy. You need to talk to her. Um, I do believe that people in the church, some do have the gifts of mercy, but we are all to be merciful. And we should not say, well, listen, I can't do that because that's, that's beyond my calling. I think this is something we just have to work through in our individual lives. Consider the founding fathers in this country, a group of men who were farmers, doctors, pastors, etc., who came together and formed and framed this nation. Just a side note, one of the things I would like to see this year is to have different ones of you to give the sermon. And please do not say to me, uh, I cannot do so because it is outside the limits of my calling. I believe that each one of you has something to contribute to the life and knowledge of this congregation. And to fail to do so would be wrong. To do so would not violate your calling. I think we all recognize, maybe it's just me, the tendency to view other people's work and to wish that we had such a job or such duties. And in the process, we fail to do what we are called to do. And perhaps, if nothing else, in our minds, we go outside the limits of our calling. The second general principle as we walk in our callings is we must do the duties of our callings with diligence. In Romans chapter 12, Paul writes about gifts and responsibilities, beginning in verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. You see, it is not enough that we have a calling. We all do. And it is not enough to do the works or the duties of that calling. We all should. We must do the duties of our callings with diligence. We must do them diligently. But in fact, we face two obstacles. One is laziness. We don't want to do the things we're supposed to do. As I said, duty is a four-letter word in our society. We would rather do things because we feel like it, not because we're supposed to do so. But there's also slothfulness in which we do our work, but in a careless way, in a sluggish way, almost to the point where it'd be better if we didn't do anything at all, rather than to do our our works sluggishly. Paul told the Thessalonians, if a man will not eat or will not work, he shall not eat. Unfortunately, I say this carefully, in our society, this is not true, because there are many who do quite well without working, living off the work of others. Be warned. William Perkins, who wrote about this over 500 years ago, made the analogy of a body of water, that if it just sits there, it stagnates. In the same way, if we have callings and we do not do the things we're called to do, we will stagnate. This sermon seems to be a series of side notes and digressions, but let me digress one more time. What I say now is more in in the form of corrective than instructive. I've heard people say, 
I do not have any gifts or giftedness from God. And if you were to ask them, why would you say such a thing? Why would you say that you have no gifts? And their answer would be, because I have to work long and hard to do the things I do. I had to work very hard to get the job I have and to keep the job I have. Nothing seems to come naturally to me. There seems to be the notion that gifts and hard work are mutually exclusive. That is, if God had given me a gift, I wouldn't have to work as hard as I do. This is simply not the case. First of all, we are all gifted differently at different levels. Some are more gifted than others. We must admit this. Secondly, we are all to work hard in our callings without exception. I would remind you that the example and the ability to work hard comes from our Creator. And thirdly, we are not in competition with one another. We are not to compare ourselves with others. We are accountable to God. If you remember the parable of the talents, the servant who was given one talent was as accountable as the other two. One was given five, the other was given two. He was not expected to do as much. He wasn't expected to end up with ten talents as the other one did. But he was supposed to do something. The parable says, to the one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. We see this in the praise that is given to the one who was given two and earned another two. If you look in Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23 are identical. The praise for the one who had five and earned five more is the same as the praise who had for the one who had two and earned two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. I find that when something is repeated in Scripture, we should pay attention. And Jesus does not say in telling the parable that the servant with, who had two talents and earned two more, that the master said the same thing to him. He doesn't say that. We hear Jesus saying the same words over again. He repeats them even though they are identical. But back to the servant who had one. He was, in fact, expected to do something. So to those who would say, I'm not gifted. I do not have gifts from God. This is seen in the fact that I have to work so hard. I would answer, you do have gifts from God. I can't help it, but the example that always comes to mind is the comparison of the story of Mozart and Salieri. Salieri actually was quite gifted. He wasn't as gifted as Mozart. Very few people have been. But somehow he saw that almost as a denial of his own giftedness. Because these things, this, this, this madman, this Mozart, seemed to, things just seemed to pour out of him, whereas Salieri had to slave over the work that he had done. No. We all have gifts from God. Not at the same level. And if you think about it, that makes sense and that's good because if we were all the same, if everyone had at the same level, I think society would not function as it should. To those who say, I have gifts from God, and this is seen in the fact that I don't have to work as hard as the next person, I would answer, you do have to work hard. 
you will have to give an account to God. Please do not compare yourself to others. Our giftedness is not seen in the amount of effort that is required. We are all required to do the works of our callings diligently. You may be thinking, okay, when are we going to get to the matter of ambition? I mean, after all, isn't this what this series is supposed to be about? I would answer two things in closing. I'm trying to lay a proper foundation, the matter of calling. If we do not understand calling correctly, I think we will not understand and appreciate ambition. But the second thing I would tell you is ambition has been coming up all throughout this sermon, if you've been listening. As we seek to serve God by serving the common good, this should be our ambition. God has given us calling. He has given us gifts, and we are to work diligently where God has put us. The Lord willing, we will look at this further next Sunday. Let's pray together. Our Father, how amazing it is how we look at life in such a secular way. We imagine that we are here as the result of biological process, that we are the products of our environment, our heredity. And we imagine that there's only a, a small part of us, our souls, that you're interested in, and you'll save those and take them to heaven. And the rest of life you seem completely unconcerned with. And what a false view this is. You are the creator. You are the caller. We are the creatures. We are the ones who are being called. The problem is oftentimes we're not listening. Sometimes we don't want to listen because we simply want to do what we want to do. By your grace, by your spirit, may we think through these things in our own lives. And consider what it is you have called us to be. Our general callings as your people. Our callings in family. As sons and daughters. As fathers and mothers. As husbands and wives. And in in your church. As members one of another. And then in society. Who we are is not some accident. You are the Sovereign Lord. And I think that before we even talk about ambition, if we do not have this settled in our hearts and our minds, we will be led astray. I thank you for the time that you've given us together today to worship you. May your Spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.